0: Friends, I am excited that today is the first Sunday of Advent and the theme of 2022's Advent is Jesus the Messiah is coming. And so I have the privilege of setting up the series and then preaching the first message in the series. Now for you who shop at Target or Sam's Club or Walmart, it feels like Christmas has been upon us since before Halloween, right? It's like we got the Marvel costumes and Santa and Christmas trees just in different sections of the store. Uh, But for us, uh, these are the weeks leading up to that help us prepare for the great worship celebration That we call Christmas. And what is Christmas all about? It's all about the coming of Jesus. Yes, his first coming that we remember, uh, he came that we might have salvation in him. But Advent, which means coming, we look forward also in Advent to his second coming, where he comes to take over all systems and structures. He comes over to take, take over the government. He comes to take over the economics. He comes to take over uh, all things. And through his rule and reign, there will be peace multiplied upon peace, multiplied upon fruitfulness and flourishing for all human beings. And he will banish wickedness and darkness Uh, And we will be changed and transformed never to sin again. It'll be a beautiful time. And so we anticipate that and Advent looks forward to his second coming. Let me read you a few helpful definitions. Uh, I know some of you are not familiar uh, with Advent and that's okay. That's why we're here to learn. So this is from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Advent, the word has Latin roots and it means coming. Coming. Christians of earlier generations spoke of the advent of our Lord and of his second advent. The first phrase refers to God's becoming incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. The latter phrase speaks of Jesus' second coming. In a second sense, advent designates a period before Christmas when Christians prepare for the celebration of Jesus' birth. This practice may have begun in some churches as early as the late fourth century. Advent began as a time of fasting. Uh, Sermons focused on the wonder of the incarnation. And by the Middle Ages, four Sundays had become the standard length of the Advent season. Since then, Advent has been considered to be the beginning of the church year. And one more that highlights a few different things. This is from the uh, continuum glossary of religious terms, Advent, it means coming the time set aside for spiritual preparation for Christmas that originated in the merging of, uh, Galatian and Roman traditions, Galician and Roman traditions. It begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, except in the Eastern churches, which start 40 days before Traditionally, it used to be a time of periodic preparatory fasting, known as St. Martin's Lent. Today, many people maintain an Advent calendar, which provides a day-to-day run-in to the festival period of Christmas. Church sermons in the period of Advent tend to call and focus on repentance. Well, here at Eternal City, we want to be a church that helps our people make the connections between Jesus and the New Testament and the Old Testament. We want to make sure that's a major theme of our sermons. Okay, Jesus is not just in the New Testament. He is all through the Old Testament. And the easiest way to see Jesus in the Old Testament, the most clear way, the way that you don't have to really understand any kind of hermeneutics is to look at prophecy. And then you look at New Testament and it says the prophecies fulfilled. So a New Testament author says this was fulfilled in Jesus. And it points back to a specific text in the Old Testament. That's the easiest way to see. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the easiest way tonight, and we're going to do one of the uh, great Christmas prophecies in the Old Testament. It's in the prophet Micah, and it's just one verse. Gino read it for you earlier. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, this word here, Ephrathah, it's a little confusing. Uh, We know, if you're familiar with the Christmas story at all, you know that uh, Jesus was taken by Mary and and Joseph to Bethlehem because there was a census. And so they had to go to their place of birth, their origin town or city or village. And so they made the trek to Bethlehem for the census. And just so happened that Jesus would have been born there in Bethlehem, exactly where he was prophesied by Micah, this ruler of Israel whose coming forth would be from old, from ancient of days, Uh, because Caesar Augustus had proclaimed a census throughout all his rule, Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. Well, what is Ephrathah? The Tyndale Old Testament commentary helps us here. It says, Ephrathah evocatively means fruitful. So the word itself means fruitful, but it's the name of a district in Judah where Bethlehem was located. So it's just the name of a district, and inside of that district was Bethlehem. Okay, so it's just geography. That's it, Ephrathah. So, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, says God speaking through the prophet Micah, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. Um, In Samuel, we see the roots of Bethlehem here. Now, Samuel was a prophet. And if you remember, he, he was the prophet that Saul consulted the first King of Israel, Saul, and he was consulted to find out what the Lord's will was. And you remember, even when Samuel died, Saul still wanted to hear from Samuel. And we get that bizarro passage about the witch of Endor. And this witch was able to call up dead Samuel. And Saul was able to have a conversation with the spirit of Samuel. You remember that? Sounds like Lord of the Rings. What really happened? And Samuel said to Saul, you will be with me tonight. (laughs) Like, how scary is that? Like, we're going to join each other in non-body form tonight. And so anyway, Samuel also uh, prophesied and wrote much history. David was the son of an Ephrathite, Ephrathah. Ephrathite It's just talking about that district inside, which inside Bethlehem, uh, where Bethlehem was located. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. Now, this is important. This might seem like genealogy for the sake of genealogy. It's not. Okay. Jesse was the father of David. And there's many Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesse and David, and that line being the line of the Messiah, and the New Testament Gospel of Matthew and Luke opens up with genealogy and tra- traces David's line all the way to Jesus. And here, uh, David and his father Jesse were from Bethlehem. That was their their hometown. Uh, it was their village, if you will. And Jesse had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And if you remember the story, uh, Samuel the prophet comes to anoint the new king and all of Jesse's boys are presented before Samuel and no, not this one, no, not this one, no, not this one, no, not this one. Do you have any more sons? Well, yeah, there's the youngest and he's out tending the sheep in the field. Bring him to me and God says he is the one. And so the youngest gets anointed as future King and he wouldn't become King for some years. And actually Saul would hunt him and try to kill him out of derangement and jealousy. Uh, and you, you know the story, but David is a type of Christ. When we see the Davidic figure, we see in David a foreshadowing of Jesus. In fact, when, when a blind Bart, was in the gospels, he said, have mercy on me, Son of David, what do you want me to do for you? I would want to receive my sight. Do you remember that story in the gospels? Jesus was known in the first century, at least among some, to be the son of David, to be the one who would sit on David's throne and have a kingdom that would outlast all other kingdoms, which was a promise that David received from God. And we'll look at that as the weeks roll on. Here's a second one. It's also in Samuel. It's 1 Samuel 17, 58. Saul, King Saul, said to him, David, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so these two passages, this is, by the way, is in the context uh, in Of David and Goliath, that famous story. Uh, So that's where this one comes from. My point is to show you that that the the Bethlehem is important because it's David's hometown, and in Micah it was prophesied that that's where the Messiah would come from. Now, if you remember, uh, we'll, we'll we'll look at this in a minute. But Magi or wise men from the east come and they see the star and they inquire of Herod the great, where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star rise and we have come to worship him. And he's troubled. He's at this time deranged and and he gets very jealous. He actually killed his, his favorite wife and his two sons out of fear for them uh, conspiring against him. He was, he was mad by this time, which is then also why he went and killed all of the children under such an age. You remember that story? And so, <clears throat> by the way, that's a, that's a picture of Jesus being a like Moses type. Remember, Moses was also in that period when a king hunted all the young children and tried to kill them all, but Moses was saved by his mother. You remember that? There's, there is a connection there. It's, it's purposeful. So here we see that Jesus is being prophesied all the way in Micah uh, that Bethlehem would be the place where this ruler would come, this ruler in Israel. And we know this ruler to be the Messiah. Now, the, the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law were asked by Herod the Great, where is the Messiah to be born? And do you remember what they said? No one remembers. How many Christmas sermons have you heard? (laughs) Bethlehem, right? The Messiah is to come from Bethlehem. How did they know that? This text. There were messianic texts that were recognized before the New Testament was even written. Before Matthew came along and said, hey, this text is about Jesus, they knew that this was a messianic text. And they were able to tell Herod the Great, Jesus, or the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And so I want to look at another prophecy uh, quickly that, that shows in Isaiah, uh, Jesus and his coming. So let's look at Isaiah 11, one to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember Jesse? David's father there shall come forth. So imagine a stump of a tree, you cut a tree down. And then if you don't get a a root grinder or a stump grinder, that thing's just going to sit there forever because tree stumps last a long, long time. Often if the tree's not dead and the roots are still good, what happens? Little sprouts come out. And then before you know it, if you don't tend to those sprouts, another tree is growing. That very thing happened to me. I cut down this little tree in my yard and I was at the, you know, with one of my battery powered chainsaws, not a good one, but a cheap one. I'm hacking at the roots and I did not kill it. And now the tree is just as big as it was when I cut it down. So now I just shape it. It's like a bush now because all the little branches. Anyway, the point here is a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. Who is that? Well, it's David and David's line all the way to Jesus. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Let me ask you a question. What does the word Messiah mean? Somebody, what does the word Messiah mean? Did you say Christ? Hmm? That's right, anointed. Anointed. Anointed one. So literally, the word Messiah means anointed one. And here, how is the Messiah anointed? With the, Holy, with the Holy Spirit. You see here, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. When did that happen in the Gospels? At his baptism. You remember that? Jesus lived a normal Jewish male life up until his baptism. Now it wasn't normal in the sense that he never sinned. Okay. That was not normal, but normal in the sense of, if you would have saw him and had interactions with him, you would have not thought much different than his brother, Judas or James who wrote Jude and James, right? The letters you would not have thought Jesus much different. Maybe he was a little kinder. Maybe he was a little more patient. Maybe he was a little more gracious than those guys. Maybe he had more wisdom when he spoke, but he lived a normal life. Jesus did not do any miracles until after the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so if you remember during the baptism, he goes under the water. He's baptized by his cousin, John, John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water and you see a clear vision Of the Trinity. You have the Father from heaven speaking, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And you have the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. It didn't say he was a dove. It says in the form of, He appeared to be like a dove. And he comes down and he rests on Jesus and he doesn't leave, anointing him, declaring in physical manifestation, This is the Messiah. And then you have Jesus in the water. And so you have father son in the water and the Holy spirit coming down from God out of heaven. And immediately you remember immediately, where does he go next? The Holy spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights pointing back to the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. And as they failed for 40 years, Jesus was going to be victorious for 40 days and becomes the true Israel of God. Remember the, the old Testament prophecy out of Israel, I've called my son. And when Jesus comes back out of Egypt from fleeing from Herod, he comes back cause Herod's dead. What's the prophetic fulfillment out of Egypt. I've called my son, meaning Jesus is the fulfillment of the people of God, Israel. Okay. They brought forth the Messiah. They did their job in a sense. And so Jesus is anointed. He's the Messiah. And then after that 40 uh, days in the wilderness, he comes out and he starts performing miracles like crazy, casting out demons, healing the sick, making the blind see, causing the deaf to hear, raising people from the dead. Unbelievable. And he would say this, he would say the miracles point to who I am and back up my teachings. That's what they're for. They're signs and signs always point beyond themselves to something, right? If you look over here, there's a sign that says men's restroom. What's the sign for? It's the point beyond the sign that the restroom is just beyond that sign. In the same way, Jesus said his miracles were signs pointing to something. What? Authenticating his messiahship and his teachings and his claims, And so here in Isaiah, 700 years before he would come on the scene, this is predicted and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Think baptism of Jesus and the spirit of the Lord, uh, the spirit of wisdom. Now I love this. This is going to show you a picture of Jesus as he walked on the earth for these three years and did his ministry full of wisdom. No one could trap him with, with their, with their tricks and traps. He got out of every single one of them. Uh, The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, I think... This verse four is pointing to his earthly ministry, but also beyond his earthly ministry to his rule and reign that is yet to come. We are waiting for it, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now we didn't see Jesus slaying anybody, in his first coming, did we? He certainly slayed some people with words, but he never was violent towards anyone. In fact, when people were violent towards him, he did what? He submitted to it. He let people punch him in the face, rip out his beard, spit in his face, handcuff him, whip him with, with shards of bone and metal, uh, nailing him to a cross. He did nothing at all to retaliate, even with words. It's pretty amazing. So this is clearly pointing to his second coming, which is prophesied to go bad for all those who are not on his side. It's not going to be good for anybody who is not with Christ and in his protection as Messiah and savior. They are against him and he is against them. And this is a a prophecy that he will destroy the wicked of the earth. Now, lest we become self-righteous or Satan might tempt us with self-righteousness, we would be in this wicked camp lest Jesus had saved us. This is why the doctrine or teaching of imputation is so important for the Christian. What does imputation mean? It means, the word means to credit in place of another. To credit in place of another. In salvation, we get credited with Jesus' righteousness. And so God the Father treats us as if we're righteous when we are not. And Jesus on the cross gets treated like he lived our wicked life. That's why he had to die a brutal, bloody death. It was my sin, your sin, that Jesus was paying for on the cross. And if you want to look at how much God hates sin and how much it deserves punishment. Look at the cross. It was brutal. It was disgusting. It was blood flowing. That should have been us. But God in his mercy and grace said, I will, I will put a substitute forward and I will destroy him instead of you. But friends, get the positive side of imputation. In Jesus, we have fulfilled the law. In Jesus, we have lived righteously. In Jesus, God the Father declaring over Christ at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That goes to you and I. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And it's not because of how we live. It's because of how he lived. And so, again, we would be in that wicked camp lest Jesus was merciful to us. And it's only by his power, strength, and moving through us that we can do anything righteous. You're familiar with Isaiah 64, 6, I trust. Isaiah, speaking of non-Christians and Christians alike, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags to God. That means in and of ourselves, which the Bible would call flesh, without the Holy Spirit, we can do no good. Even our good works, minus the Holy Spirit, are filthy rags to God. We cannot please him in and of ourselves. And so even the good things we do are out of a flesh or out of a bad uh, sin nature, out of a a dark place. And so we can only produce bad fruits because we have bad roots, root to fruit. And so the, the tree needs uprooted and a whole new tree needs planted. And I'm going to mix metaphors right here. That's why you need to be born again. And so when we're born again, we are new. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Okay. And so without Jesus and his righteousness given to us as a gift, what's the text? The classic text on imputation is 2 Corinthians 5.21. You would do well to memorize it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on the cross so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? Jesus became sin for us. Treated as if he lived all of your sins. But in him, we are righteous in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so here, when he comes to slay the wicked, we are safe. Why? Because we're, we're hidden in Christ. If you want to think of it in a location sense, uh, imagine being in a, a bomb shelter with thick thick concrete and big steel doors so that when the destruction and chaos is happening outside the bomb shelter, you're safe hidden in that location in the same way we are in Christ. We are safe in him hidden in his righteousness. Verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Now here's what I want for you guys to do. I want you to be so familiar with the Bible that when Old Testament or New Testament verses are mentioned that have hyperlinks, you start to get the hyperlink. It, it comes to mind. So verse five is pointing to, I'll give you a clue. It's in, Hebrew, it's in uh, Ephesians six. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Anyone know? Armor of God, who said it? Brett said it. Good job, Brett. Do you remember the armor of God? We are to put on the belt of righteousness. Where does that come from? Well, Paul clearly got it from Isaiah eleven five. five. Jesus wears the righteousness around his waist. It's just an image of Jesus' righteousness. But listen, the armor of God, that righteous belt that we wear is not our righteousness. You don't have any. The righteous belt that we put on as God's armor is Jesus' righteousness, And by the way, every one of the the spiritual armor is Jesus. It's not about you. It's about him. The helmet of salvation, who saves us? You? No. Jesus saves us. So right here is a picture of Ephesians 6. The righteousness of Jesus, that's our armor. The belt of Jesus' righteousness. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. All right. The reason I wanted to bring Isaiah 11 in is to show you that 700 years before Jesus would come, uh, Jesse... David was pictured as growing from a stump, a root and a branch that would bear fruit. That is the the family tree. And the line is Jesus, the one that would bear fruit. And he was from the tribe of Judah. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Back to Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So, Why is Judah important? Well, if you remember, Abraham is from modern day Iraq, which was called Ur of the Chaldeans before it was Iraq. And God called him out of all the people on earth. He said, Abraham, you, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. In fact, I want you to go out. I want you to look up at the stars, count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. And so what was that pointing to? Well, Abraham was going to have children who would have children, who would have children, who would have children. And their line would be like the stars in the sky. Well, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has how many sons? 12. And they become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, his name was Judah. And if you remember, as Jacob, who, by the way, his name was changed to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. You remember that when he was wrestling with God and, and, he, and he wouldn't let him go? I won't let you go till you bless me. And he, and he wrestled with him and prevailed. And not until pre-incarnate Jesus touches his hip and dislocates his hip uh, does he end the fight, end the wrestle. And he, at that point, changes his name to Jacob. Uh, And and it means one who wrestles with God and prevails. And so the 12 tribes of Israel mean the 12 tribes of Jacob who has met God and had a personal wrestle with him. And so now they're the people of God, the people of Jacob. And so here, Judah, when Jacob dies, he is blessing his children. And when Judah gets the blessing of his father, Jacob, he says many things, but one of the things he prophesies is the ruler's staff shall not depart from you. And I hope I'm not stealing any of the sermon fire from you guys, but just repeat me. It's okay. The ruler's staff shall not depart from you. That was a prophecy back in Genesis about Jesus. And it was a prophecy from Jacob to Judah that from you is going to come the rulership. Now look at Micah one who is to be ruler in Israel. And so here we can go back even further to Genesis 3.15 to the snake crusher prophecy where Satan is being cursed and the curse is the seed of the woman will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. And you can trace that to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Watch the line of Judah and Matthew will trace it all the way back to Adam in Matthew 1. Now, Judah is a, a, a smaller clan, but Bethlehem is even smaller among Judah, meaning the people of Judah that settled in Bethlehem, they were insignificant. That's what the text is saying. So think of it as, as villages or, or little townships. So we can think about just people-wise, Wilkinsburg is 2.2 square miles, Do you know how many square miles Monroeville is? 20. So there is way more people in Monroeville than there is in Wilkinsburg just because of the size. So it's greater in that sense. Well, Bethlehem is just this little little village town just below Jerusalem. I think it's like two or three miles just below. It's very small and insignificant. But here, this insignificant little town is gonna be where the savior of the world is born. And that's what God likes to do. He likes to use the small and the insignificant and the surprising. The element of surprise is what God is all about. And so he says, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah, families, clans, tribes. Think of it like that. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. All right. Now with my last 14 minutes and 30 seconds, I want us to go to the new Testament into Matthew two, one to six. Okay, A familiar text, but it's deeply connected to Micah 5.2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, again, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and this would have been Herod the great, behold, wise men, in the Greek, it's magi, which is why some translations say uh, magi, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Craig L. Bloomberg is a Matthew scholar. And I want to read you two little excerpts from him. This first one is about the Magi. Uh, They were not Kings. There's that we three Kings is is an extrapolation. I, I hate to ruin that that great Christmas song from you for you, but it's it's not biblically accurate. It'd be more like we three wise men or, or or magi, magicians really is what they were. They were magicians. They were astronomers. Anyway, astronomers or astrologers who served in the royal courts in Persia and Arabia. The appearance of a new celestial light above a certain land was often believed to portend uh, the birth of a king in that country. Although various attempts have been made to equate the star with a comet or a conjunction of planets or some other natural phenomena, a supernatural explanation is better, especially because the star guides the Magi from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And so the idea here is that these, these guys were astronomers or astrologers or magicians, and they were in the royal courts of Persia and Arabia. Think Babylon and Daniel. And there was a tradition, because you remember, a lot of the Jews were exported to Babylon. And so a lot of the Hebrew thinking... Because Daniel lived a long time in Babylon and he was high, high up in the government and he shared his Jewish wisdom and Jewish understanding of the old Testament with all those magicians. And so there was an understanding of the Jewish God. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar, right? You remember that story. God humbles him. And he says he is the most high God and rules all the nations of men. You remember that in Daniel 4. So think about Babylon. It is Babylon, the great whore, quote unquote, in Revelation, but it's also a place where the knowledge of the true and living God existed. And so these magi or these astrologers, astronomers had the knowledge of this Messiah, probably from the days of Daniel. And so here we read in Matthew that they came and asked Herod the great, we saw the star, we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled because he was already paranoid, troubled because he was already, in a sense, schizophrenic and deranged. And so he's troubled by this news of a king and all Jerusalem with him because they knew of his craziness and they're like, it's about to go bad for us. And it did. It did go bad for them. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, an interesting contextual piece here for verse four, uh, the chief priests were mainly of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were, there was three sects in this, uh, Culture here, there was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes, who were like the ascetics. They were like the Amish. They kind of pulled out and did their own thing. They were sectarians. The Sadducees were those who were like liberals. They they were very political in their in their thinking, and they were in with the Romans and in with the government. And they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And you remember Paul used that in the, uh, when he was in trial, he's like, I'm here. He's on the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin's made up of of Pharisees and Sadducees. He said, I'm here for the hope of the resurrection. And all of a sudden these guys look at each other and they start fighting and Paul's like hoping to sneak away. It was brilliant actually there. Close parenthesis. So the, the chief priests are in a whole different sect than the scribes because most of the scribes were Pharisees. And so I never saw this before studying this passage. Here, what what Herod was doing was very wise. He knew these were in two totally different camps and they didn't consult with each other. So he asked both different camps so he would get a straight answer. It's interesting. So he, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, Matthew changes some of the language, and, and there's a couple things to think about here. When we think of quoting, we think of quoting in very different ways than the first century writers of Scripture did they would quote often from memory or they would make an allusion to a passage. And that was the same thing. We think of like getting every word just right and then citing the author. And it wasn't like that back then, okay? So Matthew does change a few things up, but he's still quoting from Micah 5 two. And so here, Craig L. Bloomberg again helps us. He says, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfills a direct predictive prophecy of Micah 5 two and may also allude to 2 Samuel 5, 2. Matthew adds the words, by no means, to the prophecy, not to contradict Micah, but to reflect that once the Messiah is born in this small village, it will no longer be least among the rulers of Judah, as it had been. That's interesting. So here, as he changes it, by no means, least among the rulers of Judah. Uh, Craig Bloomberg sees in this, Matthew understands now Bethlehem being raised up to great significance. Once it was this little, no nothing, forgotten little village, and now it will be forever exalted. Why? Because of who came from it? Jesus, the Messiah. And then lastly, uh, I want us to, well, let me finish who will shepherd my people Israel. So the ruler uh, is one of Jesus' functions. He will rule and reign as a king. In fact, all the kings that failed point to a king that won't fail. And he will be a king that judges with righteousness and equity and fairness, and with the people's good in mind. And kings were often looked at functionally like shepherding the people. And you can see this in two very famous Old Testament heroes. Number one, we already talked about him. Remember David? Where was David when he was to be brought forth to be anointed as the next king? He was out shepherding the sheep. And so this is the type of king that God wanted. Now, Moses also functioned like a king, though he wasn't a king, but you remember he would lead the people. And in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Exodus 18, rather, he would, he would judge the people from day to night. You remember that? And this is what Kings would do. Where was Moses when God first called him to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember the burning bush? What was he doing out there in the wilderness? He was shepherding sheep. And so the the kings would be like shepherds in that they would care for the people. And Jesus, in the New Testament, in John 10, says, I am the good shepherd. Meaning that he would be the one to finally and fully shepherd God's people. He, he, yes, is saying, I am the fulfillment of Psalm 23, definitely. But he's also saying, I am the great shepherd of Israel. I am the chief shepherd. And that word shepherd uh, is also the word that we get pastor from. So pastors, what are they supposed to do? Functionally, they shepherd people. Okay? And so here, this ruler is going to come and he's going to shepherd people. He's going to rule and reign with righteousness. His shepherding or his ruling will not be to squash the people for his good, but rather, what does he do? He gives up himself for the good of the people. Most rulers take their position of power and authority and they lord it over others for their benefit. Right? Where Jesus does the exact opposite. He gives up power. He gives up authority. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to or to grasp. And and he became a servant, even to death on a cross. And so Jesus gives up power and gives up even his life for the sake of his sheep. It's a beautiful contrast to earthly kings. It really is. And David, though he had his faults and failures, which is why Jesus is the greater David, he succeeded where David failed. But David is the shepherd king who is a type of Christ. Okay, and lastly, I want to look at the prophecy from an angel. Did you know that angels prophesy too? We have an angelic prophecy in Matthew. It's in one 19 to 20, a familiar passage. I'm sure you remember the story. Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. By the way, she was a young teenager, probably 15, 16 years old. We always see the, the Catholic statues and think she was like 30 when she had Jesus. This is a young teenager, like just able to probably give birth, you know, because that's when young women married back in the first century. And so she is this young, inexperienced, Like you're going to take care of a child, God, in human flesh. Yeah, that's me. So Mary is this young teenage girl and she's pregnant. Joseph's probably older. We don't know how much older, but he's old enough to care for her and hold down a job and and provide for the family. He is betrothed to her, which is legal uh, engagement. And he finds out she's pregnant and he knows it's not him. And he's like, all right, well, I love you but I can't stay with you. And so I'm going to quietly separate and put you away. Though Mosaic law gave him the authority to have her stoned and killed, but he loves her. He doesn't want her to go through that. He doesn't want her to go through public humiliation. So he decides we'll put her away quietly. And her husband, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, probably the angel Gabriel, appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, son of David is not insignificant. Why is that significant in light of all we've just said? Both Joseph and Mary are from the tribe of Judah. That's important but Mary even more so because Joseph technically wasn't biologically connected to Jesus, was he? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Remember Isaiah, the spirit of wisdom, counsel, might, and the fear of the Lord? The spirit conceives Jesus. She will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, why is he to be called Jesus? The word means savior. Yeshua. And the prophecy is the cross how is Jesus going to save his people from their sins? He is going to go to the cross as a substitute for all his people, and he is going to bear their sins in his body on the tree. And so even Gabriel the angel, probably, is prophesying about why Jesus is being born. And so in all of our Christmas festivities, let's not forget the big idea here of Christmas is why Jesus came and we have it clear as Matthew 121. Why did he come? To save his people from their sins. Because friends, sin is what is keeping us from God. Sin is what keeps anyone out of heaven. Our sin is what separates us from God. And we need to have our sin rightfully dealt with. And the only way our sin can get rightfully dealt with is by a sinless savior who both fulfills the law positively, lives out all the commands in in a way that God receives those uh, commands being lived out, and then negatively pays the debt that our sin requires. And Jesus does both. He both righteously fulfills the law I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he negatively goes to the cross as a substitute for all those who would ever trust in him. So my plea with you tonight is you must trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. This is why Jesus came. It would be very amiss of you to celebrate Christmas year after year after year, and yet miss the reason for Christmas which is Jesus coming. Why did he come? To save you from your sins. And then from there, you can have right relationship with God. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel, meaning Jesus brings us into right relationship with God and we get God and fellowship with him and favor with him and entrance into his own family where Jesus even taught us to pray, our father in heaven. And so, This is the reason Jesus came. Don't miss it. Are you in the people of God by way of Jesus? His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. How do you get in? I'm going to make it as clear maybe as I've ever made it. You must turn from your sin that displeases God. And as you turn from that sin and your back is facing it, that's called repentance you then look to and trust in Jesus as your only hope of forgiveness. And when you ask him for mercy and grace and forgiveness, verse after verse of the new Testament tells us he will forgive you and he will fill you with his very spirit and enable you and empower you to live a life that pleases him. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. And he will, if you confess your sins He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is the gospel.